Hello, everybody. Welcome to MHTV. We're really pleased to welcome you today. We've got a really good session. Um, some very interesting and exciting guests today talking about addictions. But before we do that, obviously, I'm Nikki Lambert. I'll just hand you over to my colleague, Vanessa, who's going to tell you a bit about how you can join in. Hello, everybody. Welcome tonight. Um, as Nikki says, we've got a really interesting um, evening, hopefully. Um, I'm going to be doing the social media tonight. So um, you can join in two ways. You can either join in on Twitter by following MHTV and tweeting us to the hashtag there, and we will bring any questions into the session. Or you can go on Facebook Live. In fact, you can do both if you want to. Um, to join on Facebook Live, you just need to like the Unite MHNA page and you'll see the live feed there. If you want to comment or ask any questions, there is an opportunity on Facebook to do that. So I'll be concentrating on that and hopefully as well, I'll be sharing any links and resources tonight that you might find useful. I'll share them on Facebook and I'll share them on Twitter. Okay. What I'll do now is I'll just introduce our guests and then we'll come back to Vanessa for a word on um, International Suicide Day, which it is today, Suicide Prevention Day, obviously. So first, obviously, um, to Carmel. Carmel, can you introduce yourself? I can. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you, Dave. Um, so I'm delighted to be able to join you this evening. My name is Carmel Clancy. I am a nurse, I suppose, first and foremost, both general and mental health trained. I'm an addiction nurse. Uh, I would always identify or self-identify as. Um, but my actual proper day job, <laughs> for want of a better word, is I'm head of school uh, for the School of Health and Education uh, based at Middlesex University, which is in Hendon in North London. Uh, I'm also a professor there in addictions and mental health and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. And Adrian? Hi, I'm Adrian uh, John Doyle. Um, I'm also at the Middlesex University and I have a strong specialist interest in um, drugs and alcohol. However, like Carmel, I'm dual qualified, and I've always had drugs and alcohol as a as a passion within the within addictions, but also in physical health. So when I worked in A and E, I often was drawn towards the alcohol and drug related presentations. When I was in drugs and alcohol, I was often delving towards hepatitis type stuff. So I've always had alcohol and drugs as part of my professional career. Thank you very much. All right, so just back to Vanessa briefly. Yeah, um, yeah. we just wanted to um, really say a few words because we're aware that it's um, World Suicide Prevention Day. And we were just saying before we went live, actually, that it's crept up on us a little bit this year with COVID and everything. Um, but it feels important that we should acknowledge it. Um, if you follow the hashtag on Twitter on World Suicide Prevention Day, you'll see that there's lots of tweets and lots of people sharing the stories um, so certainly, you know, from that point of view, it's a great initiative for people talking and sharing the lived experiences. Um, I would also say, really, um, one of the things for me about suicide prevention is that it isn't just about people who work in mental health. It's about everybody. Everybody's got a collective responsibility um, where suicide prevention is concerned, whether it's, you know, working at a train station, working in a college or university. And the message for me really is about, you know, just reaching out to people. If you think that, you know, you're working with a colleague or a friend and, you know, you've noticed a change in them or, you know, they're going through a difficult time, like we all go through difficult times in our lives, you know, reach out to somebody, have a conversation with them. The other thing I wanted to get across really quickly was that we know that there's a really disproportionate number of nurses who are taking their own lives. And as a nurse, I feel that's really important to highlight. 
Mm. Um, before COVID, I was starting to um, doing some work with Zero Suicide Alliance, which I would also look up because they offer lots of free training and resources around suicide prevention. But also to say that, you know, we've been having conversations really about organising um, something through social media around um, nurses and raising awareness. And I know that Unite are really involved with some work that NHS England are doing. So there is work going on behind the scenes to look at nurses as a group, which is really heartening to mm. hear, given, um, you know, the lack of emphasis of it in the past and, um, you know, some of the difficulties nurses experience. And I guess, you know, for me, you know, knowing the pressure that the healthcare workforce have been under during COVID, I think it's particularly important, isn't it, to highlight it at the moment. So I won't say any more because I don't want to, um, you know, eat into too much of tonight's discussion. But um, just to say, if you're listening and, you know, you're feeling low, um, you know, reach out to somebody, have a conversation with somebody that you trust. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch afterwards, um, happy to direct people to resources and um, you know sources of support as well and organisations. Um, so that's it really. Take care from me. Nikki, any thoughts from yourself before we start? No, not for me today. Thank you. Um, All right, thank okay, you. Uh, if Carmel and Adrian want to add anything, obviously when I come to you, please do. Please do. But just getting us started on tonight's main topic. Um, the international perspective, Carmel, was something I really wanted to talk to you about because you are um, involved in a, a, an institution called INSA. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Um, so, yeah, so basically I'm I'm currently president-elect um, and I take over the presidency of this society in October. <laughs> so uh, INSA is called the International uh, Nurses Society on Addictions. Um, and it is primarily actually comes out of the US because that's where it was sort of given birth to, I suppose, although it does have an international tag. Um, and increasing over the last probably five, six years, there's been a real surge to try and expand the international footprint of that organization. And we have um, give or take around nine, 10 different countries now engaged, including places like Nigeria, Tanzania, many European countries, uh, Chile, um, where else, Brazil, and of course, the, as I say, the largest number of the members at the moment reside in the USA. Um, it's been around uh, initially as a national organization in the States from in the sort of 70s, uh, a little bit like ANSA, if people who remember ANSA, Association of Nurses and Substance Abuse in the UK, a similar sort of time frame, um, but it merged in 2000 into the international. And so uh, it is a dedicated society for nurses, uh, not addiction nurses as such, you don't have to be an addictions nurse to join, mm -hmm. but any nurse. And we would actually have a strap line that says that every nurse is an addictions nurse. And maybe we'll explain that a little bit more as we get into the conversation uh, this evening. But ultimately, it's a, it's a great uh, source of support. It's a you know, membership organization where you'll meet like-minded people. If you're struggling still to find your tribe, so to speak, and you're interested in this field, I certainly recommend that you check us out. And the uh, the website, I think, is being tweeted uh, very nicely by Vanessa. Uh, and we will get back to this again, but we're having a free month-long conference starting from the 4th of October, um, where we have over 60 different webinars, synchronous and asynchronous educational events, not just around nursing issues, all issues related to addiction. And we'd love to capture you and see you online there. So 
I'll stop at that. But it's uh, it's 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 a great it's a great uh, source and point for nurses to come together. Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll be sharing um, links to if we haven't already. We're sharing links to that conference as well. Um, and if you've an interest, bear in mind it's free. It's online. You can certainly access it and and find something. I think that will feed your interest. Um, another thing I think that come where you've been speaking on a lot is this idea about upskilling the workforce. Can you tell me a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, this goes to, a, a, I suppose, the wider issue and just what I've just said, that every nurse is an addiction. Mm. Um, if you think about, and it might be just for those who, if, if addiction perhaps or drug uh, substance use is new as a subject area or you haven't given it much thought, I thought it might be interesting for people to know, and I think that this is kind of quite dramatic, but drug use is directly or indirectly responsible for, quote, it, almost 12 million deaths each year. Mm -hmm. um, and that's phenomenal. In actual fact, if you think about it, that that's more than the number of deaths from cancers. So while we often think of cancer as this sort of really concerning issue, sometimes addiction is very invisible or hidden uh, problem, often probably because of stigma, uh, mm. and we might touch on that later. But certainly mm. it doesn't necessarily get probably, I think, the attention it does, it, it really deserves. Mm. Um, you know, and, and we're talking about, you know, sort of suicide prevention, for instance, today. Yeah. Um, over 350,000 people die from overdoses. Uh, and often, you know, the overdose may be unintentional, but um, having worked previously um, in the drug-related deaths, um, mm -hmm. I was part of that down at St. George's Medical School some years back. Um, you know, when you talk to the coroners, uh, even though it might be described as an overdose, potentially unintentional, actually at the point that somebody is, is putting something into their arm and mm -hmm. injecting, Mm -hmm. Who knows actually what the thought process was at that point? Yeah. And often we are missing intentionally, unfortunately, mm -hmm. people who are at a very, very vulnerable point of their lives. And they actually just say, do you know what? I don't really care anymore. So there is a lot of hidden concerns within the drugs and alcohol field that often doesn't kind of get picked up in a way that it seriously needs to. Uh, mm -hmm. And the reason I talk about upskilling nurses is that mm -hmm. nurses you know, whether we like it or not, nurses are actually in the trenches, in the forefront. You know, you're going to meet a nurse either in a school setting, you're going to meet a nurse in a primary setting with the GP, you're going to meet a nurse in an A&E setting, you're going to meet a nurse in a theatre setting. You know, you will meet a nurse everywhere. You'll meet them in yeah. your home, you'll meet them on the street, in outreach, you'll meet them, etc. So for me, if we could upskill and make drug and alcohol a core capability, a core skill... Okay immediately you have now got a massive workforce who can at least start to deal with some of what I would call earlier steps. I'm not saying everybody has to be an expert or advanced practitioner. You mm -hmm. do need the experts to take on the more complex and co-occurring issues and mental health and addictions. But early stuff, you know, that tip of the iceberg stuff, asking yeah. basic questions. What are you smoking? What are you drinking? Could you think about that? These are basic, basic public health messages and interventions that I think every nurse should have in their toolkit. So there is a need to upskill everybody to feel comfortable to have these conversations. And I always say when I'm training people, you know, nurses kind of in some respects sometimes don't kind of cover the sex, drugs and rock and roll bits. And we do need to ask questions about this. We need to ask people about their sexual health. We need to ask people about their drugs and alcohol. And we certainly need to understand what people's recreational habits are because they can veer mm -hmm. towards poor choices. And nurses mm -hmm. are on the forefront of having those conversations.
So yeah. I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's really helpful, and especially understanding what skills exactly are missing. And it seems to me they're they're questioning skills, which all nurses should really have. Correct. Uh, very, very basic skills. I mean, if you think about, you know, you, you any question, you go into your GPs now, they tend to ask you basic questions. Are you smoking? Are you drinking? You know, what are you drinking? You know, kind of getting a measure of baseline around there. So these really should be questions that every nurse feels comfortable to ask. And unfortunately, our educational system and somebody who's been working in the educational field for many years mm. uh, feels slightly shy to say that we're not still good at that. Um, yeah. And there are major, major gaps still, I would mm. suggest, in our core curriculum, not just in nursing, actually, but in medicine, social work, right across all the professions. We have yet to get, it's almost like the, the horse has bolted. You know, and we're now talking about it because often most of the addiction courses are at postgrad level. Yeah. What we need to do is we need to get them embedded into our core undergraduate level. And that means that, if, you know, I always use the argument that if you're a nurse, for instance, and this is a classic example, um, and you're not taught how to do a blood pressure in your nurse training, and you yeah. then go out onto the ward or you go into your nurse career, and the first thing you're asked to do is take a blood pressure. If nobody's shown you how to do that, you will then naturally rightly assume that's not my job. Yeah, so yeah. we do not teach our student nurses, student doctors, student social workers at all how to ask these questions. Why would they not think that this is their yeah. job? Because nobody's yeah. trained them in it. So we have yeah. a, a really a serious accountability as educationalists to get that right to start with and make sure that we actually allow people to go out fully prepared and ready to engage in what is a very complex world out there. And quite rightly, you're, there is not going to be, and anybody tells me that they will never come across drugs and alcohol in their nursing, medical or social work career. You know, there's something wrong. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Living on definitely. an island in a Buddhist monastery, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And um, one of the things you did touch on as well was stigma. And I know that that's something that was, uh, that Adrian particularly wanted to tell us about. Could you? Yeah. Expand on that yeah. again. So I know Carmel's done a lot of the background with regards mm -hmm. to how alcohol is out there, drugs is out there, and often we turn a blind eye to it. And that could be due to society, it could be due to our professional, or snobbery sometimes. So mm -hmm. you've always got nurses who want to work in ITU or want to work in CMHT. But when it comes to drug and alcohol, we've often seen it as this Cinderella service, which mm -hmm. uh, historically has been underfunded. Mm -hmm. um, the nurses don't tend to go there. They'd rather go somewhere else. But it's one of these jobs that when you go into it, you really enjoy it and you never leave, really leave it. So the stigma is really odd. So if I was to say something like 85% of the population of the UK drink alcohol, but then you were to look at nursing notes or medical notes and realise that history taken, mm. drugs and alcohol aren't even, aren't even brought into the social history, which tells me that either the doctor didn't think it was important, the doctor may have been embarrassed or nurse, and there's something wrong there because it's not an intrusive question. I can think about times where I worked in A&E and there'll be a young lady coming into hospital with abdominal pains. So you'd ask all the general questions, what have you eaten? What's your mm. bowel habit? Have you been for a week? Mm. I'd also ask sexual history because it would be relevant. And mm. so certain conditions which are relevant mm. aren't being asked those questions. So there's a report that came out about five years ago from, from NCPOD. National Confidential Inquiry, Inquiry for the Prevention of Death. Mm. And one of the key headlines that came out from that was 
of patients who had a underlying diagnosis of alcohol-related liver disease, when they looked at their last admission to hospital when they died and retrospectively went through the notes, the question of alcohol wasn't even mentioned. So in their diagnosis, it said alcohol-related liver disease, but mm -hmm. the clerking doctor or the nurses never asked that question. Now, I would ask you the same question if I had presented in the hospital with COPD, mm -hmm. I guarantee everyone would have asked me about smoking. Yeah. Or if I wasn't smoking, when yeah. did I stop smoking? Yeah. And if I was smoking, how much? They'd even offer me um, nicotine replacement uh, patches and stuff. Mm. But for alcohol, no. And then what you tend to find is if, you if you're if you not looking for it or you, you haven't questioned it, you'll tend to find that the, the teams late at night or early morning are presented with a, let's say, a 50-year-old man who's coming with a fractured ankle falling off their bike or at the rugby in acute withdrawal. Mm. And for me, that brings its own risk because if we weren't hiding around this alcohol problem or not willing to look at it, this presentation this presentation of alcohol-related withdrawal or seizures, et cetera, wouldn't have happened. So there is a lot of stigma around it. And I don't know whether that comes across that those who drink are bad, or is it because it's got this double-edged sword? Because the media do push it out that if you, you can't have a good time unless you're drinking. Up until recently, a lot of our sporting events were sponsored by alcohol and even cigarettes. Some of us are old enough to know when the snooker was sponsored by Rothmans or on all these other things. Mm. But nowadays, it's its responsibility. But again, I think healthcare might not be looking at it in that same way. Um, there's been a lot of work, especially in acute medicine and um, acute uh, admission units, where um, the government has put money using sequins to increase alcohol-related screening into hospitals and GP surgeries, etc., and for me, can you just explain sequins for anyone who thinks it's sequins? It's a quality improvement initiative where um, central government or even local government would give money for an intervention, and the yeah. intervention is to have a positive gain on certain groups of individuals or society as a whole. So there was a sequin um, about four years ago that mm -hmm. basically pushed that every A&E department must have screening questions for alcohol-related pr presentations. Now, I'm not going to go over what alcohol can affect in physical health or in mental health, but the problem is there. And I would say, why are they paying us to do a job that we should have been doing anyway? The question should be there very much front of house all the time. But what you found was that doctors wouldn't ask the question or they only asked the question to the drunk person. Mm. Okay. So you say, are you saying that because alcohol is all around us as part of society, it's like invisible? Or are you saying well, that people are embarrassed? I think a bit of both. I think invisibility could be because I drink, I can look after myself, you're the one with the problem. Mm. Or if I had a drink and I fell through... Uh, let's say fracture my ankle again as an example mm -hmm. I can I can rationalize that for myself but when it comes to someone else you're not willing to listen to why they why this happened we're quite can be quite judgmental sometimes with regards to yeah. alcohol and drugs and yes we earlier on before we came online we spoke about sex drugs and rock and roll which mm. has been common in the 50s 60s 70s 80s all the way through we know about the 27 Club of all these rock stars who've passed away mm. of, of natural causes, but generally alcohol or drugs. So mm. it's not a new phenomenon. So mm. I don't know whether it's because 
um, we are embarrassed or we're willing to blame ill health or misadventure on you, but we're equally equal likely to do it ourselves. I think, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. I think sometimes health professionals who are prone, we have to say to stress-related smoking, drinking, um, poor food choices, so basically yeah. surviving all day on Kit Kats out of the, um, <laughs> of the machines to get by and feel better about things, um, yeah. can be very judgmental to other people about how they cope with um, difficulty and distress. Well, just to add one quick bit to this, all of us probably here are aware that when we did our nurse training there was a social mm. club attached to the to the hospital oh, god yeah and all hold my hands up to the there. social club from back in the day <laughs> i just uh, you're making me now reflect back because i can remember and those of you who can remember when you were allowed to smoke on the wards uh and in actual fact i mean i'm an ex-smoker uh so i do know that you know many of the arguments when they were trying to bring in the no smoking ban, we used to actually say as mental health nurses but it's a it's a tool it's a therapeutic tool that we used to have as a discussion now when i think about it i'm going what you know but but that was the thinking and i have to say thankfully i think we have moved on a little bit from there uh because you know the the, the public health messages are managing to to get through both for for health professionals mm -hmm. and for the public but you know i think for me there is an issue of stigma, certainly, but I also think that, you know, often people don't know how to ask the questions. And I'm yeah. going back to that mm. issue again, Nikki, it's, 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 you know, people think it's, you know, we talk about drugs being good or bad, or we talk about drugs being hard or soft, or some, some are okay because they're legitimate and the, the government will taxed, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and so if the government taxes them, it's causing it, you know, so what's the problem? You know, so it's really interesting how we compartmentalize a little bit to to either support our, our use or not. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, a, a helpful if it's a, a, a tip for others, you know, particularly if you're in the health game not to get into that kind of debate with people about good or bad, you know, strong or soft, mm -hmm. legal or illegal. Um, and, and often a very good opening kind of stance is to talk with people about and say to them, what is your relationship with a blank? So whether that's alcohol, cannabis, whatever the substance is. So what is your relationship with that substance? Because mm -hmm. if you focus in, because to be fair, I genuinely believe people have relationships with their drugs. You often mm -hmm. say to people, what's your favorite drug? What's your, your primary drug? People, mm -hmm. you know, have almost kind of got a little bit like, you know, that thinking when they're using, oh, it provides me with this or it gives me this or whatever. So it's not just that it's a clean cut, like taking a paracetamol. We know it's not. It's, it's a bigger mm. issue than that. It's an so emotional say, issue, isn't it? It's an absolute yeah. emotional attachment. So if you say mm. to people, what's your relationship with this substance? It removes the good, bad, the legal, illegal, the soft hard, blah, blah, blah. And what I can say, you know, and I genuinely say this even when I'm training with people, and you might have picked up from my accent, I'm Irish. So people might stereotypically say, oh, well, you know, she's Irish, probably likes a good old jar, a good drink. Actually, mm -hmm. I have a good relationship with alcohol yeah. in that I can actually take it or leave it. I don't get too upset if somebody cancels a pub, you know, sort of outing. Or if I've got no alcohol in the house, I don't go into sort of like major meltdown and run mm -hmm. out the first thing in the morning to make sure I filled mm -hmm. up. But mm -hmm. I have, and I know, and that's why I stopped smoking, have an appalling relationship with tobacco. If I started mm -hmm. to smoke, I would be on 20 a day injecting it in my neck. I mm -hmm. loved it. So it's about mm -hmm. choices around your relationship. And you can, I know people who take heroin, for instance, on their birthday and at Christmas. 
Well, so, so what? You know, that's fine. It works for them. If you can make your drugs work for you, I'm not a policewoman. I'm not, I'm a health professional. I'm into, is it a good relationship for you or is it causing problems? If it's not, fantastic. Keep doing it. You know what I mean? But I think if you can say to people... I was not expecting that health advice from you today, Professor Clancy, so thank you for that. Well, what I, I suppose what I'm saying is that, you know, it, and then, of course, it's a problem from whose lens because, yeah. you know, you might think it's not a problem but your family certainly do or your children yeah. certainly do. But what I mean by that is that starting at the point of asking people, what is your relationship takes away a lot of those stigmatizing kind of questions that you end up going into in kind of questionnaires. You know, mm. is it a good mm. drug, bad drug? Is yeah. it legal? Is it legal? Because that's all irrelevant, isn't it? At the end of the yeah. day, we're here irrelevant. to help people live the best way they can. Correct. Correct. Um, making, not really making, making positive choices that work for them in their life. Mm. Yeah. And for, and for me, Nikki, the, the introduction to talking about drugs and alcohol is actually quite natural. Mm. When we come in come into work in the morning we'll often chat about how was your night what uh, i went out for a meal etc it can be that conversational introduction into mm. delving into people's social lives because mm. um you can't look at a patient or a service user just purely using the medical model or their illness mm. there are lots lots of things do contribute to this and carmel's right it can be family it could be um stress it could be any of these things and i think sometimes Nursing's almost become a tick box exercise in regards to going through t- um, paperwork and ticking things off. Mm. The communications have seemed to have gone. The, the human side of nursing seems to have disappeared. So, yeah, a relationship with a drug, a relationship with a behaviour is often a nice way of introducing this whole concept. Mm, and when you're, yeah, uh, sorry, and when you, um, and when you're trying to scale this to see whether people have improved or got. Uh, or got worse again using that as your tool as opposed to how much do they use etc because people don't count how much they smoke or how much they drank it's often the re- what else has gone on yeah. um, I'll, um i don't know i i slept better last night that's something that's tangible and it's rewarding or mm. i'm really annoyed with what's happened this weekend i ended up losing all my money when i normally wouldn't have done that again it's mm. another way of introducing the topic without destigmatizing without stigmatizing it sorry and also mm. putting a link to, to behavior and consequence or behavior and positive outcomes mm. i think we're going to go to vanessa now because i think we've got a backlog of questions built up there so sorry, vanessa we're back <laughs> Yeah, we've got lots of questions. So I'll, I'll get just ready, guys. Brace yourselves. <laughs> I'll do a couple and then um, you, you can come back to me as well if you like. So I'm going to start um, by a question that we got from a paramedic. Make you frozen was, there. Oh, do you want me to have a look and see what we've got in terms of questions? Yeah. Can you hear me? All right. yeah, Go on. I can, I can hear you. Am I back in the room? Sorry, I think it's my signal. Um, so we've got a question from um, a paramedic, which is um, great comments, um, awareness training will give the staff the confidence to ask questions. And due to shortages, this needs to be expanded across the health sector, um, both pre and in hospitals. So it's actually a question, it's more a comment. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on that? 
I mean, absolutely. It's all about uh, awareness raising and, and absolutely at the moment with staff so in the trenches, just trying to pull people out of the water. They've no time to, as I say, go up river to see the who the hell has thrown them in. Um, so that is exhausting. So so there is something about how do you access some really useful resources? Maybe, you know, sort of when you have a little bit of downtime at home that's online. Um, I did send through a couple of professional networks, uh, Vanessa, to you, which I think you're going to be tweeting. If it's, uh, if you're... Uh, have you sent those? You have. Thank you. I've put them on Facebook and Twitter. For oh, thank you, Vanessa. Up. Because for the for the paramedic, um, you know, you might want to check out a, a, an organization called ISUP, I-S-S-U-P dot net. And that's the International Society for Substance Use Professionals. So it's kind of more generic as opposed to the nursing one, which I'm a part of, or ISAP, which is actually the doctor's one, um, but the I, the in uh, sorry, the ISAP one has a fantastic website of huge resources, multiple resources, videos, TED talks, all sorts of links done by theme. Really recommend checking it out, and even it's free to register with them. So if you want to become a member and be part of their newsletter and so forth, it's a good way of just keeping you tapped into current things that are happening both globally but also within the UK. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, so we've also got a question that's kind of linked to that. So I'll come to that next. And this has been actually a theme on previous sessions. And that's about um, what can we do as professionals and educators to promote the teaching of drug and alcohol issues in health and social care curriculum? So that has been a recurring question, actually, for a few of our sessions. Oh, well, I, I don't I, I did uh, give another link to a, a, a paper article that I wrote called Getting It Into the Water Supply. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I use that because it's uh, if you look back in the 1950s, you know, when we had huge tooth decay, which is a major public concern. Um, and really, they didn't know what to do until they introduced fluoride into actual just your drinking water. Hey, presto, yeah. you know, tooth decay pretty much eradicated. So I've used that metaphor <laughs> really yeah. as, as, as a way of saying that we cannot ignore this anymore. It is, it is the other mm. pandemic in the room, you know, that nobody really has given the same attention to. Uh, and in actual fact, if you're looking at the numbers that I quoted at the beginning, you can see it's killing more people. So why this is not getting the same as COVID, I'm not in any way disrespecting the attention COVID is getting, but certainly it's up there with it. And we really do need to think about how we get this into our education. It has to be not at even at the point of pre qualifying courses like nursing, you know, paramedics, et cetera, et cetera. It needs to be in the primary school. How are we actually introducing education around this right through the different educational foray? And then actually within the professional uh, organizations, just if you look at, and this is what's quite horrifying for me, um, if you look at uh, historically how many hours nurses, for instance, were getting in their undergraduate training, give or take 20 years ago, it was about three hours, three hours over a three-year period, okay? That was 20 years ago, and it's pretty similar in the U.S. as it is in the U.K. Now, currently, it's on average six hours. That's mm. a three-hour difference in 20 years. Look at the exponential increase in, in the ubiquitous side of drug and alcohol use. I mean, it just doesn't map. 
AMCD years ago, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, brought out a, a, a very, very nice paper, but it's now so dated, about the need for education. Everybody keeps talking about education and how important it is. doesn't seem to follow through. Now, some of that is because we don't have the champions. We don't have the champions within, to be fair, within uh, the, you know, take nursing example. We don't have the addiction specialists who are teaching in in the 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 the, the what you call it academic group. So mm -hmm. the academics who are, and this is one of the things that we keep saying, why hasn't that dial changed in the 20 years? My own hypothesis is, is because the teachers have not had the training either. So it's kind of perpetuating itself. We don't train the nurses who are in school now. They then go on to become the academics of the future. They didn't have the training either. They don't train it. Nobody kind of gets it. So yeah. it's kind of a cyclical thing. We need to break down. We need to start teaching the teachers and then get them to not stop trying to teach the students. First, teach the teachers and get their attitudes right, get their training, give them all the, the awareness training, give them the, the tools, the skills, you know, all of the PowerPoints, everything done beautifully, show them how to insert it. And then we can then say something is going to happen because we don't have all the champions we need at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting as well because a lot of addiction services are no longer under NHS contract either, are they? So yeah. I guess that's got a big bearing on it in terms of the workforce mm -hmm. going to work in the NHS. Correct. And certainly if I was to talk to somebody with expertise on addictions, I would say nine times out of ten I would go to somebody in the third sector because I yeah. would know that they're living and yeah. breathe addictions work every day rather than NHS nurses. Well, you did. I was. I sat on. Uh, you know the orange guidelines, uh, Professor or Sir Professor John Strang, um, which is looking at treatment, obviously for 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 uh, opiates. Um, and I was sitting on on the review of that, and he asked, "What's the single most different thing that's changed since the last guidelines?" And yeah. quite a number of us, including Mike Flanagan, who is uh, actually a nurse um, specialist as well, but he's actually, I think, the chair of the non-prescribing yes. forum, the national non-prescribing forum. And we both said the workforce, the biggest mm. change has been the workforce on how it's shifted yeah. from statutory to non-statutory. Now, I have no problem with that. You know, there's there's room for everybody and that's important. But the fact of the matter is, is that the minute you moved a lot of the addictions into the non-stat, the dedicated roles of doctors, nurses, people who are attached to traditional NHS type services, they actually got pushed out that role. And now you're finding, so if you're in a student nurse and you want to be aligned and have a mentor or go to an addiction service for placement, you may not be able to work and have a mentor who's an addiction nurse so then where is the next workforce then? Because we're starting to see addiction nurses disappear in terms of formal role. They're still there, but maybe not called that anymore because in the non-stat, they might be called a generic drug worker, not a nurse. So where is, you know, where is the nurses to actually supervise and support the next generation? They're not mm -hmm. there in the clinical areas now either, or at least they're starting to disappear. And, and the, the docs will say the same thing to you. Yeah, I think from my point of view, Vanessa, it's really odd one because I'm I'm not pro privatising the NHS in any way, but little bits have been taken away, and we know that. So the third sector have come in. We know how big alcohol and drug related health and impact there is going on in society. We know that. So the third yeah. sector have come in, and Carmel's right. Nowadays, I think there's only about two or three addiction psychiatrists training posts in the UK. 
So wow. the specialist has gone from the top. And then the nurses like myself have been pushed into a prescribing role. Well, I don't mind prescribing, but so who's doing the therapeutic stuff? It'll be someone with an MVQ, and I'm not patronising an MVQ, but the value of a nurse or a doctor is more than the wage you give them. Yeah. I actually got thrown out of a, um, a seminar, which wouldn't surprise Nikki, uh, when, <laughs> where I, I actually questioned the commissioner saying, you're obsessed with value for money. And for you, value for money is cost. For me, value for money is getting the most I can for my workforce. Yeah. And that would mean having people with skills and multiple skills that can do one job. And he goes, well, what does that mean? I said, well, a nurse isn't just a nurse. A nurse doesn't just give prescriptions. A nurse can do a holistic assessment. Yeah, a nurse can see yeah. something and go, oh, I wonder if your blood pressure is high. Do the yeah. blood pressure and then link it to, oh, you haven't taken your medication this morning. I'll tell you mm -hmm. what, come and see me again tomorrow. Uh, take your medication and they can do some health checks as well. As opposed yeah. to an MVQ tech checklist where it is, oh, did the blood pressure was high, refer straight to the doctor. And for me, that was that's one of the biggest problems that the specialist nurse or the specialist person addictions isn't being taught in the right way. It's yeah. being taught very linear. Um, and I'm I'm not bragging, and I shouldn't be bragging. I got a phone call less than a month ago uh, from a friend who was working in the NHS saying, "I need some um, some advice, but I'm not working in the NHS any anymore. I can't find anyone in this hospital that I trust enough for this information." So five years down the line, I've left the NHS and I'm getting phone calls from consultants for advice, which tells me something's not right within the health service. If if you can't make a referral or get advice from somebody in the, someone within the hospital, something's not quite right. And again, for me, it must be how things are commissioned. Yeah. It goes back to Carmel, and I've read Carmel's paper and I've actually presented on it as well, about um, workforce. Um, we're working in silos. That's the problem. We're working in silos, we're taught in silos, we're funded in silos. Uh, we've now become practitioners that work with an exclusion criteria as opposed to an inclusion criteria. Yeah. How else in the where else in the NHS would you be too unwell to come to my service? Or you're not well enough? Yeah. Where else could you be in the NHS where you don't warrant an assessment? But these are the this is the language we're seeing now in new commission services. Yeah. Where else would you have an 18-month waiting list for a therapy? Mm. It wouldn't happen. It's it's really bad how these kind of things have now become commonplace. Mm. But apparently things are getting better. I think from a service user point of view, I think there's more options, but getting in through the front door is still a problem. Yeah. Or getting uh, some, a degree of expertise is still so much of a, so much of a problem. Mm. There used to be this dual diagnosis worker that every CMHT was meant to have. Who who is this person? I don't think anyone has actually got one anymore because mm. it was often seen as a luxury post. Mm. But we know that, um, and Nikki and I talk about this all the time that this crossover individual has probably got really high complex needs, not just mental health, mm. not just addiction, but physical health. Yeah. And that person who is meant to key work and to be the advocate for this individual is no longer there. It's yeah. seen as a post that's removed to put somewhere else. Mm. So for me, that's really difficult to work with and understand how silos are still there. We're trying not to teach in silos, mm. but everything else seems to be done that way. I think it's interesting just to Simon, just to pick up on on Adrian's point, just but also maybe for for those who are watching and listening. 
Um, you know, there has been, in fairness, a recognition that the workforce has shifted and changed. And this is not a comment about which is better or worse. I, I really, I, I would say, actually, this problem is so big, we need everybody's input, okay? Wherever you're starting from, whether that's from a lived experience, peer support level, right through to consultant psychiatrists, et cetera, everybody, you know, please come forward, step forward. Nobody will be pushing you away if you think you have something to offer here because we have such a need. But there are, you know, still clear issues about if you are going to make sure that there's a sustainable workforce that is trained and capable, you do need to make sure that these roles are not compromised and that they're not lost. And there is a fear that if you have a more generic role, then if it's everybody's business, it's kind of nobody's business. There is actually still value, and I hope people would agree with me of a multidisciplinary approach. Each discipline brings something new from their perspective, from their particular lens. And so I absolutely would say, you know, I would want a psychiatrist at the table or a GP, a social worker, psychologist, a peer support worker, somebody with lived experience, you know, uh, you know, paramedic, you know, nurse, all of these people, you know, will give a rich, rich account and understanding and hopefully be able to help that individual in the middle who needs all of that support. And, and to be fair, Public Health England some time back started to recognize that, you know, people were saying, what are the roles of some of these uh, so-called, you know, sort of traditional people, psychologists, docs, nurses. Um, and so I've just uh, sent through to Vanessa a link that she could send out, which is one that uh, is linked to a series on the different disciplines and their role in drug and alcohol. So the one I've sent through is for uh, nurses and their role in drug and alcohol treatment. But there is a series of those, one I think for social work, one for psychology and one for doctors. And they're all on that kind of public health link. And I would direct anybody, if you're not sure what that role is and what they're doing, Doing and then get involved to see what exactly is happening. That might be a good starting position, but certainly multidisciplinary, multi-professional, multi-agency. Um, we need everybody. <laughs> well trained. We've got course. ten minutes left, guys, um, and wow. quite a few questions to get through. So I'm going to hand over to Vanessa for a quick fire round because I don't want yeah. to. We've got so much expertise yeah. in the room. We want to get as much out of you guys as possible for the for the yeah. people who are watching. Yeah. So bear quick, with me. Some of them, Quick I think, questions, yeah, some of them I think we've, an, we've answered already in what we've just right. said. Um, there's a question about stigma, um, whether it's stigma that leads to a failure by doctors and nurses to ask about substance use. That was certainly something I was thinking about as well when we were talking about the inequalities earlier. Yeah. Any thoughts about stigma um, and how that might impact on doctors and nurses asking about substance use? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we have to, I would say that, you know, doctors and nurses are part of the general public. We are just as much exposed to all of the, forgive my friend, the crap yeah. that media often put out about, you know, be careful, you know, drug addicts, all they do is try and, you know, kill you, rob you, get your money. You know, there's such negative, negative press out there, um, you know, that unfortunate people with problematic substance use have to wade through all of that rubbish yeah. before they often can break through to get to somebody to listen to them and actually appreciate that actually they really do need some support and assistance. So nurses and doctors are just as much exposed to that. Equally, remember, 
we all have somebody within our circle who has been affected by substance use. You know, so there will be doctors and nurses, social workers who've grown up with people with alcohol problems in their family. They will have experienced perhaps trauma, childhood abuse themselves as a result of addiction, perhaps. So don't forget, you know, doctors and nurses, the social workers, they're human. They're going to bring all of that experience, sadly, to some of their clinical input. And that will color potentially the patient that's in front of them that reminds them in terms of a counter-transference of their mom, their dad, their sister, or somebody who's caused them pain. So we have to be sympathetic also, because if we're not, if we're too, uh, um, you know, sort of unsympathetic to our colleagues, they'll shut down and they won't talk about it. So let everybody tell us what they're thinking, work with attitudes, and let's be just genuine and kind to everybody. Those with the poorer attitudes and those with the good attitudes. Yeah. And then we might uh, have a solution. Yeah. It's brilliant. Um, next one is, um, do you think there are cultural differences to drug and alcohol use and the acceptance of this in our society? So cultural differences. Yeah. Yeah, there is big cultural difference. I'll, I'll, I'll come from a slightly different view because I know Carmel's already done the Irish point of view. Yeah. In the, in the, in the Indian culture, um, beer isn't seen as an alcoholic drink. It's just seen as a drink. So to prove my my power, my strength, um, spirits are, the, uh, are what I use. And it's not just the spirit. If I was to invite you around my house and to show you, here's a bottle of bells, it shows you that I've got some money. But if I was to bring out a single malt and we're drinking sing single malt, it gives me a bit of kudos. So culture is really odd. It could be, yes, people have got a drinking culture, but it can also be a status symbol. And from the Indian point of view, it is a very big... Um, mm a very big problem. I remember working in A&E and asking certain people, oh, do you drink alcohol? No, 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 no. When you speak to the family, he drinks 10 pints a day, but he, the, the gentleman hasn't seen the link between the two yeah. or the word isn't right. Mm, um, so it's, it's really odd from that point of view. But yeah, I think it's not just culture. If you look at different parts of the UK, different parts of the UK have got a different relationship with alcohol as well. Yeah. Um, I know you've got... We've got London and we've got the, the bars in London. We've got the pubs in the, in the countryside. We've got different relationships wherever we go. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that because the, the reason why people drink or socialise are different, but no one actually wakes up or has a life choice of saying, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be dependent on drugs. They've actually done a lot of experimenting and, and enjoyment to begin with. Mm. There's often that crossover point where things go wrong and they often a lot of people come back from that point there is a, a significant minority that do require help and i think half the problem is some cultures will hide them hide these individuals i know many cultures where uh mom or dad who drinks too much is kept at home or there are other ones that are completely ostracized and kicked out of society so society is a big factor yeah that's really great answer thank you um I don't know what the question is here. It just says champagne always associated with winners from Grand Prix. Yeah. So well, that's looking at kudos. It's looking at prestige, like you were saying, isn't it? Yeah. The yeah. fact that it's an emotional experience. Yeah. yeah. I can see a new name here saying uh, from Dibbit Taylor saying, do you yeah. think potential yeah. compassion fatigue in terms of revolving uh, door nature of addiction? So what do we do about the fact that, you know, everyone thinks that you get, you give treatment, someone gets well and they go and that's job done. And that's not necessarily what happens. Yeah. No, I no. My my always response is, what do you say to diabetic nurses then? Do they get compassion fatigue? 
What yeah. about other chronic long-term conditions where patients who really shouldn't eat that or they've just had a heart transplant and now they're back on the full fat? You know, do we get compassion fatigue for them? Probably, maybe, a little bit. Do we get irritated? Mm-hmm. But I don't know if we necessarily slam them in the way that we do with the first time a drug addict tries to stop taking drugs and we say, you see, they fail. They always fail. So I just think we have to catch ourselves. And That's we have a really to, good point. I, I think we have to say, why would we put measures against people who are working in the drug and alcohol field any differently to any other long-term chronic condition and say to them, why are your patients not managing to succeed? Why are your patients not recovering? Well, hey, Mm. hang on. (laughs) What does that mean? And what does recovery mean, actually? You know, what is success? Is it actually to be drug-free? No, because actually you'll find some patients will come to you and say, you know what, I'm happy to give up the heroin, but I ever, never stop in the cannabis. Well, okay. Let's get off the heroin first. Let's go there and then see where we are. That's success. So I think we have to be really, really careful about this compassion fatigue. It's all about, uh, actually, it's about the professional shifting their position and their lens and determining actually what's right and and wrong and what's success and what's not success. And certainly in my experience, what I think is success is never necessarily what my patient thinks. (laughs) So let's start with their position. Yeah, it's about that whole growth mindset as well, isn't it? That not just writing somebody off because at one point in time they've got an addiction and they're never going to overcome it. But it's about believing in someone, isn't it? And seeing that they've always got the capacity to change and develop. And And I tell, you know, I don't know. I know I say this for people who don't necessarily work in this field, but just let me tell you, people who have substance use issues and have had them for a long, long time, they are exhausted themselves. Get our compassion fatigue they're exhausted. And what they need to hear is that you're actually there for them, non-judgmentally listening and prepared to accept where they're at. Please, please just be kind. Okay. They've had a very tough journey. um, And often when you listen, actively listen to what has happened and what has gone before and why they made those choices, to be quite honest, I actually am always in awe that they've even survived. So I think just give you know, cut them a break and listen. Okay. You might be, you might learn something and say, wow, these guys are actually quite courageous sometimes. I think as well, um, the front door to the NHS is actually quite a scary place. Yeah. And if you, some, if you have those attitudes at that front door, you often can turn away the wrong person. And I think each and every one of us who've worked in the community, our biggest fear is picking up the newspaper and finding one of your service users somewhere on there. And what you'll often find is they're looking for help. Now, I'm not saying every A&E department should uh, take everyone in and make, make a hostel, but often making the experience as a health promotion opportunity. Because you're right, uh, Carmel was right. If a diabetic was to come in and their blood sugars were a little bit high you would do the health promotion information you would give them positive reward you would give them uh, goals etc for someone who's drinking a lot of the time i think there is fatigue but often you need to look at yourself why am i saying that because you wouldn't say it to doris who's an 80 year old lady who had one sherry who fell down the stairs mm. often we do it for other people and i think it's a really odd one um people are busy and I acknowledge that the NHS is busy but we all signed up to that anyway so for yeah. me when someone says oh I'm too busy for that I'm, I'm not too busy to care for that person there to, to ask them how they're doing do they want a cup of tea that's how I build that relationship that's how I build that trust yeah so for me that's really important 
Yeah, it's been a lot of what we've talked about tonight about the human side of addictions, hasn't there really? I think that's mm. for me a strong message that's come out tonight and about mm. kind as well mm. um, and non-judgmental. I mean, Should we take a couple through, more questions and then... Um, yeah, I've, I'm looking through the questions and for people who are listening, it's not that we're not answering, but we're running out of time. And when I look through them, I feel like we've covered a lot of this in our discussion tonight. Um, so I'm going to ask a final question question which is from Alfonso who joins us every week which is great and yeah and um, just a really important point about when we talk about addictions we talk about we're talking about drugs and alcohol um, but addictions are obviously much wider like addictions to food games sex and so on how do we, how come we tend to talk less about other types of addiction is it because they are less harmful or is it because stigma is higher Oh, that's a great question. I, yeah. Well, if you if you look at the, just from a, a the the sort of the the neurobiology and 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 sort of you know sort of what the reward pathway in the brain yeah. in actual fact all addictions are pretty much the same. They run along the same reward pathway. So whether you're searching for the next orgasm or whether you're actually looking for a bit of chocolate, uh, it's actually the same buzz. Yeah. You know, I mean the the neurochemicals are different yeah. or are, are you know are different. The neurons slightly firing different, but that's really what you're doing is you're setting off your reward pathway um so but so so in actual fact when you talk to people who are into gambling or into some sort of like you know sort of uh, behavioral side actually you know how you might approach the treatment is very very similar in terms of the uh, psychosocial uh, engagement you would actually take very very similar responses to how you would work with that so uh, there is no difference in some respects other than perhaps cultural in terms of availability some can be more hidden because you can do it online whether that's through porn or whether you can engage in really sex you know you know sexual activity that's hidden behind a door people kind of think that's you know not too bad whatever drugs of course because people have to go out and buy them and purchase them in a slightly different way carry perhaps even greater risks around people's liberty. So maybe that's why it gets the attention because yeah. of potentially it's more public facing side. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking it through a little bit on the hoof, but, but in terms of the behavioral side and how you would respond, yeah. actually it's probably not, it's not that different um, to actually drugs, you know, whatever the drug is, as people say, what's your drug? That could be all sorts of things. I, I, yeah. I think that's a really good question that Alfonso has asked and I'm still thinking about it. A lot of it could be just down to uh, how sexy it is. Sex, drugs and rock and roll, that statement has not gone. But no one's going to talk about food, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thing. So perhaps there's a lot of, we're going back to status again. Um, it, perhaps it's getting all that notoriety because of what's going on in society. You wouldn't, I know programs like The Biggest Loser and all these programs are really good and really inspiring, but the amount of people who you would see in the news who've gone to rehab for a yeah. pain control issue or for a detox. Again, I think it glamorizes it. I'm not saying full glamour, but it mentions it and it's just saying the same message over and over again. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's some of it as well. It's just that society is not fair and the way that we look at things isn't fair. And I think it's one of those things that are hidden yeah. and we wouldn't really generally talk about it. 
I think mm. if, if I can, I mean, one of the things which maybe is a nice way to end, because often we do a, a them and us, you know, it's quite, you know, we do the other very nicely sometimes. Uh, and certainly, um, uh, you know, over the course of my career, you know, you know, I've, I've probably certainly done that. And I've certainly witnessed that a lot where people talk about the other, the different, that we're not them, it's them, the patient, whoever. But actually, I think, you know, Alfonso reminds us, you know, that actually behavior is behavior is behavior. We all yeah. have something that we would say probably that we're addicted to whether that's you know carnation street whether that's actually the bar of chocolate every night whether that is reaching for the bottle and having the drink because you don't you know you can sleep so so mm -hmm. actually what's really nice and maybe something for us to all kind of own is before as they say you take the splinter out of somebody else's eye you know just check it the plank that might be actually in yours and, and do just a quick kind of check am i really uh you know you know throw the first stone sort of thing and and i think if we can think about that that might allow us to be a little bit more empathic a little bit more compassionate and even though i don't understand your drug of choice I think maybe we all have a drug of choice and just check out what it is and try and touch the feeling behind that and be a little bit more understanding because we all often tend to have some crutch. Um, and so maybe that's 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 uh, what people should be thinking about, actually. Yeah. I think we do need to come to an end now. Uh, oh, that went so fast. Thank you so much for that. And for all people who've written so many questions um, on Facebook and on Twitter, we will come to them. And if we couldn't give you an answer in this session, we'll certainly tweet something out as well. Okay. Yeah, so we'll come around to everybody to see if anyone's got any final thoughts. Um, again, I need to find a different way of saying that. It sounds so final, doesn't it? So anything <laughs> they want to share with the audience before we close for tonight. So I'll come to Adrian. Is there anything that you wanted to highlight before we finish up tonight? I know Carmel's going to continue what I say, but um, um, INSA is an organisation that is global, but we do have a UK chapter. And so, um, which I am the president of, but we have a very, well, we don't really have any representatives yet. So if any of you would be willing to join a workforce that's, that is willing to start making noise for uh, service users or patients who suffer from alcohol or drugs or any form of addictions, um, do get in contact with the INSA website and find me that way. I know there is a link in, in the chat. Um, and it's not, it's going back to Carmel's original statement of that uh, any nurse can be an addictions nurse. Just asking that question is really, really important. Even to the paramedics who gave um, some really good questions, alcohol and drugs are out there everywhere. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge it, that it's not good or bad. Um, people use it for many different reasons. Unfortunately, we only see the two extremes, people having a great time or people picked up from ditches and corners uh, with vomit all over them, or as Vanessa introduced today, with the worst case. Um, so for me, if you're willing to start making some noise, do come and join INSA, or at least uh, show me you're interested, and we can see how much noise we can make, not just in the UK, but I do have colleagues in Europe, Australia, and the rest of the world, which we can start doing some alliances. Brilliant. Great. Brilliant. Carmel? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I would never add to Adrian. I think you've said it all, Adrian, which is really good. <laughs> what I would say to everybody, though, and this is kind of hopefully a, a take home message as well, is substance use, you know, and particularly problematic substance use is, is a lifespan. 
you know, it can start in utero with the mom who unfortunately yeah. is using. So baby is, is, is can come out and, and be unfortunately dependent. Um, and it can actually now and increasingly, and I think this is something that we didn't really touch on in terms of sub-communities and different types of communities who have their own needs, but we are absolutely invisible to our older, older uh, community. Um, who are behind doors, particularly, who are particularly more isolated because of COVID at the moment, and we didn't touch on the implications of addictions and COVID. But yeah. please don't forget, this is a lifespan issue. It is not just about the cool kids hanging out, teenagers, young people. This actually is, you know, sort of 70, 80-year-olds drinking, potentially using, you know, sort of various narcotics to help them sleep or to cope with comorbidity or to cope with, with bereavement. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, everybody that comes in your eyesight and your eye line, please remember, ask them, hey, how are you doing? And what drugs are you using today? <laughs> yeah. Please, with that intonation as well, I like that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, Vanessa? Yeah, um, I, well, I started tonight by talking about it being World Suicide Prevention Day, and I think it's been quite interesting that there's been a theme tonight about being human, about connecting with humanity, and about being kind. And I think whether we're talking about reaching out to someone who's suicidal or reaching out to someone who's got an addiction or potentially has got an addiction and is suicidal, because as we've talked about tonight, people aren't symptoms, people are human beings. And often it's just, you know, it's not one problem, it's lots of things. Um, and we've talked about things like the impact of trauma. You know, we've talked about cultural differences and things. So I, I think my message really is about that. It's about being human, being kind and about, you know, connecting with people and, and like Carmel says, asking the questions and talking to people like they're the same as you really, because it could be any of us who've got an addictions problem. And I think, you know, there's too much othering goes on a lot of the time. So yeah, that's my message. And Absolutely. thank you both because it's been really, really interesting. And I've really Absolutely. appreciated a really straight, honest talking session tonight. Hasn't it? <laughs> really, thank you. Yeah, um, a message from Alan just coming in lately um, so talking about the fact that maybe one of the reasons people don't ask is they're not quite sure what to do. If that's the case, you know, there's nothing worse than asking a question of being unsure. Um, if that's the case, don't forget that uh, Carmel and, and Adrian have both told us about a free conference that we can use to skill up. Yeah. And that is going to be being um, tweeted out. You have that information. Please, please join it. You'll be more than welcome. Um, and another thing to remind you of in terms of, sort of free education coming up, it's MHNR. So mental health um, uh, nursing research uh, conference coming up starts on Tuesday at 7 p.m. Um, following the same format, the details are in today's show credits and we would love to see you joining in on that if you get a chance. So just wish, wishing us, um, wishing you all a lovely, lovely evening and saying goodbye from us all now. So take care, everybody. Take and care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.